You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. I cared about politics long before I cared about faith. Once I became a Christian, I became attuned to just how much of our politics is driven by faith. I came to understand that I personally could not choose between caring about faith or politics because my faith is what leads me to care about politics. This understanding led me on a journey that took me to D.C. for college, to Iowa and Chicago to intern for Barack Obama's underdog campaign for president, to the White House, where I helped the president navigate faith issues and relationships, and then to serve as one of the handful of people to run religious outreach for a winning presidential campaign. My whole life has been dedicated to this question of what faith looks like in public and what it ought to look like in public. In every election of this century, the role of faith has been underappreciated during the campaign, only to be discovered in the exit polls. Campaign actions are misread because there is no faith lens, voters' motives misunderstood for the same reason. 2020 has to be different. This election is too important not to be. And so over the course of the next 16 months or so, we are going to look at the presidential campaign through the lens of faith. Each episode will feature an interview with a campaign staffer, a religious leader, a leading journalist, or other experts who can help us to understand the role faith is playing in 2020. I want to be clear about a few things about how we will look at faith in 2020. For us here at the podcast, faith in politics is not a euphemism for white rural evangelical voters. I'll be looking at faith broadly, as broadly as the campaign itself dictates, hosting leaders I personally disagree with on some issues, and helping you to understand why decisions have been made regardless of whether I agree with those decisions. There will be time in the podcast for me to express my personal views and the direction I would like to see the campaign go, but this podcast is not about trying to convince you who to vote for. I know that the same things that would motivate me to vote for a candidate would probably uh, motivate you to vote for uh, someone else or to oppose that candidate. This is about helping you understand this historic campaign as someone who has been involved in campaign strategy regarding faith at the highest levels, from the side of campaigns, as well as the side of religious groups trying to influence the process. But in order to understand 2020, we must first understand what has come before it. And this is why we are launching this podcast with a series of historical episodes. What you'll hear over the next several episodes are interviews with some of the very top experts, presidential campaigns, and seasons in our politics that have been important to bringing us to where we are now. In this first episode, we will be talking with Amy Sullivan about 2004 and 2006. So John Kerry's loss in 2004 and the role that Faith played there. And then the role of faith in the Democrats' resurgence in 2006 when they took back Congress. That interview actually proved to be so robust that we actually broke it up into two episodes. And so I'm looking forward to you hearing from my friend Amy Sullivan. The second interview we'll want you to hear is an interview with Joshua Dubois. Now, Joshua Dubois is 
Someone I've known for a very long time. Someone who hired me. Uh, someone who ran uh, Barack Obama's first uh, presidential campaign for faith outreach. Someone who led Barack Obama's Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in the White House. And he's going to walk us through 2008. What was so uh, unique and powerful about Barack Obama? What was so different about uh, the faith outreach that Barack Obama did in 2008 and uh, what it can tell us about faith outreach today? And then the third interview is with the New York Times' Amy Chozik. Now, Amy is one of the most well-respected journalists uh, in all of politics. And Amy uh, is someone who reported both through 2012 and also 2016. She wrote a phenomenal book on Hillary Clinton based on her decade plus of reporting on Hillary called Chasing Hillary. And she's going to help us to understand and walk through 2012 and especially 2016. Along the way, especially as we're talking about the Obama years, I'll offer uh, my insight, particularly in the 2012 campaign. But these episodes will provide us with something of a shared vocabulary that we could then apply together uh, as 2020 unfolds. That's all I have to say. That's, that's all the setup. I am so thrilled to be on this journey with you. So thrilled to be able to share in what is still an amazing process of democracy. Uh, still an amazing process of people entering the public square. Of candidates willing to put themselves forward and voters having the opportunity to evaluate them. And that's just what we're going to do on this podcast. When we come back after this break, I'll introduce our first guest. Welcome to the Faith 2020 Podcast. Despite President George W. Bush's significant relationship with white evangelicals, with conservative Catholics, inroads that he had made among Hispanic Protestants, and even African American Protestants, Democrats still weren't on to the fact that religion and faith were going to play a critical role in that campaign. Religious issues were turned into major turnout issues for President George W. Bush as he barnstormed the country in support of federal marriage amendments in key states like Ohio that they hoped would turn out voters. Uh, meanwhile, as we'll hear from our guest, Democrats were struggling to even see how faith would be integrated into a successful campaign. Amy Sullivan is one of the best people to walk us through this time in uh, American politics, particularly from the lens of faith. Amy Sullivan is an incredible journalist. She's worked at Time. She's written for uh, a number of publications. She is the author of the book, The Party Faithful, How and Why Democrats Are Closing the God Gap. She's a Michigan native, uh, a proud graduate of the University of Michigan and Harvard Div. Amy is someone who was on this beat before people knew the beat really existed. And I am just overjoyed to be able to invite you into this conversation with Amy. The conversation ended up being so rich uh, that we broke this episode into two parts. The first part covering mostly 2004 and, and that presidential election. And then the second episode, we'll talk about the aftermath of all of that and, and just what changes Democrats made, at least some Democrats made, 
in order to lead to a more successful outcome uh, for the party in 2006 as they took back Congress. Without further ado, this is Amy Sullivan. This is the Faith in 2020 podcast, and we are just so thrilled to have Amy Sullivan with us. Amy, how are you doing? I'm great. Glad to be with you. Hey, it's really a pleasure. I'm glad you're the first guest on the show. We're, we're just honored to have you with us. Amy, just for a sort of set the table for this conversation, would you mind just describing a bit of how you got into this space of writing about faith and politics and what sort of led you to write the book? Uh, how did you get involved in this space to the point where you're um, you know, one of the premier experts when it comes to particularly the Democratic Party and how it's approached faith outreach over the last you know several decades? Well, I appreciate that, Michael. Um, unfortunately, I got into the space because I was um, one of the only experts, if not the <laughs> only expert, <laughs> when I started writing about it. Um, I wish I could say that there was a plan, but it really came from being someone who grew up in a fairly conservative evangelical church in the Midwest, in Michigan, and um, also grew up in a family that was very much involved in democratic politics and committed to the more progressive or liberal side of um, the political sphere. Hmm. And um, coming to work in Washington, D.C. in politics in the early to mid-90s, not thinking anything of that particular combination. Um, my <laughs> faith uh, informed my politics. It was a big part of why I came to work in democratic politics. And it won't surprise you, as it did me, <laughs> when I arrived to find that uh, a lot of people thought that combination was unusual. Right. And so it was kind of in trying to figure out uh, why that would be the case that I started researching kind of the intersection between religion and politics in contemporary American politics um, while I was in my master's program at Harvard Divinity School. Yeah. And then uh, I wasn't even in journalism yet, but I saw I saw a story people weren't writing in the lead up to the 2004 presidential campaign in that it seemed to me that Democrats – had a, a pretty good precedent to look at in that the only two successful presidential <laughs> nominees they'd had since Lyndon Johnson were two Southern Baptists um, who were very comfortable talking about faith. And that didn't mean that Democrats could only nominate a, a white dude from the South right. who talked about religion. But it, it did tell me something in terms of how Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton were able to relate to voters at the level of talking about values and things that just struck people at a closer level than um, simply policy proposals. Yeah. Um, and so I wrote my very first magazine article um, about that topic and making that argument that Democrats needed to find somebody who was fluent in the language of faith. Hmm. And um, it blew up because it made people on the left angry, <laughs> people on the right angry. <laughs> and that's a good way to get a lot of attention, even though I yeah. hadn't um, intended to. And uh, suddenly I had my beat um, and my area of expertise. And that's that's kind of been mine ever since then. Yeah. Now, it, it's important in sort of understanding that the state of the party headed into 
2004, the re-election campaign of George W. Bush. You know, so the party had been led by Bill Clinton in the 90s. Of course, the the slogan of sort of that administration, or at least its campaigns, was, was "It's the economy, stupid." Which I think to many people, part of that was what it's not about. You know, it's not about all these. Uh, it's not about the more uh, ethereal, the more cultural aspects of politics. It's not even necessarily about values. It's about who's going to get the economy going. And then, of course, we had the impeachment scandal. So that George W. Bush came in as the values candidate at a time when Democrats felt in my view, that if the campaign was about values, if they were talking about values, they were going to lose. And so Al Gore, you know, takes on George W. Bush's, you know, very moral, sort of character driven campaign with, you know, the lockbox. Uh, and <laughs> of course, you know, uh, Bush won in that election. I have kind about of. The yeah, right. Of course. <laughs> uh, you know, Bush uh, won the Electoral College and won the presidency. And you know, we'll talk about this a bit later, but Democrats didn't really feel like he should have won, like George W. Bush was presidential material that first time around. And the second time, it was kind of like, well, of, of course, he's not going to win twice. But tell us, how were Democrats thinking about faith heading into 2004? And what are some of like the key markers or data points you'd put up to help us get a picture of, of what the state of play looked like? Well, um, I guess I'd start by quibbling just a tiny bit um, with that version of history, um, just to remind listeners that in 92, the country was in a recession. So it was really important um, for all of the candidates. And we had Ross Perot in there as well, really hammering hard on jobs and the economy. It was really important for the candidates to be focused on the economy. And, um, you know, it's one reason why James Carville came up with it's the economy stupid. But at the same time, I think what nobody appreciated fully was that Clinton did a better job of relating to a lot of American voters than George H.W. Bush did. Um, the senior Bush is, you know, sometimes thought of in um, rosier terms now <laughs> than uh, right. he was at the time. Um, he was really not somebody who seemed comfortable around the average person, um, you know, with uh, good reason. I believe he might be the only presidential candidate who, at the time he was running for re-election, had spent 12 years in and around the White House. So he he had been literally out of um, normal life for more than a decade. And um, even though Bill Clinton had been in the governor's uh, mansion in Little Rock, right. uh, we had all sorts of reporting <laughs> to show that that didn't exactly keep him um, away from regular folks. And uh, just his way of speaking and uh, the language that he used, and he got knocked a lot for um, seeming to be over the top in terms of his pathos and I feel your pain. Um, but that did connect to a lot of people. So that was part of what Democrats um, experienced in the 90s and maybe didn't take away the lesson that that was an advantage hmm. that Clinton had, uh, sure. that his his Republican 
opponents, both in 92 and in 96 with Bob Dole, um, just simply did not bring to the table. So that might have been an undervalued part of Clinton's political persona. Then, as you say, we had the uh, impeachment proceedings after the Lewinsky scandal came out. And Republicans made the first mistake there where they overplayed their hand. They overestimated the extent to which the country wanted to spend Hmm. months and months and, in fact, more than a year really sitting in the muck with the details of that and the extent to which the country was demanding that somebody be punished. But then I think Democrats – misread the situation and thought that because the midterms in 98 were so successful for Democrats, and it seemed like voters were rebuking congressional Republicans for really pushing impeachment the way that they did, I think Democrats concluded that American voters didn't care Hmm. and that personal immorality wasn't a problem for them. And so that's why leading into 2000, you had a situation in which Democrats really um, weren't going to worry if their candidate ended up to be an incredible technocrat <laughs> who um, just did not really relate to people on a even you know a good politician um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. knows how to use kind of resonant language, um, and that was just not who Al Gore was. And at the same time, you have George W. Bush who talked about how he felt about things and talked about emotions. And in some ways it's similar to Jimmy Carter coming in in 76 after Watergate Hmm. when that was a time when voters um, clearly wanted to see somebody punished. And so that happened with Richard Nixon's resignation and leaving office but they also were realizing that they needed to know about the moral character of the man or woman who would sit in the Oval Office. Yeah. And I think I think we're seeing something similar to that today. And I think that was definitely in play in 2000. And Bush was willing to give them at least a proxy for having insight into his character. Sure. And that was the extent to which he really emphasized his evangelical Christianity. And that was just something Gore did not reveal at all. He could have, uh, but that was not his read, or I would argue National Democrats' read of the electorate in that presidential cycle. So obviously, the Democrats lost the presidential race in 2000. Was faith identified in the wake of 2000 as a reason for the loss? And if so, do you feel like there is a recognition at elite levels of the party that things needed to change You know, heading into 2004? Absolutely not. Yeah. The U.S. Supreme Court was identified as the reason for the loss hmm. in 2000. And I'm not being facetious. Right. <laughs> um, most places you went in Washington from the years 2001 to 2004, um, people were angry. Um, if the best gloss they could put on it was that it was a fluke. Right, And so as far as they were concerned, 2004 was going to be a reset. It was going to be Bush's first election the way it should have been Hmm. in 2000. Yeah. And what they weren't willing to grapple with is that he had had four years to form a connection with American voters. Right. 
and for particularly um, religious conservatives, both evangelicals and Catholics, but also mainline um, Protestants, to form um, kind of an identification with him. And so it wasn't like he was coming in cold and it was an open seat uh, Hmm. or an open race for the White House. Uh, And yet that's the way a lot of Democrats chose to frame it. Yeah. Now, in 2004, which candidates in the primary were paying the most attention to faith? And were there any sort of moments that stick out to you during the primary before we got to the general that we could see faith playing a role in deciding the nominee? So as in most Democratic primary cycles, faith was not really something that came up. Um, That's been pretty much the tradition. And the assumption has been that if you're a Democrat, um, the time to talk about faith is after <laughs> you've won the nomination, right. honestly. Um, yeah. You know you know that there are people in the party who will argue that it drives away voters mm. more than it attracts them. Um, but I think a lot of people think at best it's a wash, and why would you spend any time doing that uh. um, before you have to try to reach across the aisle to get people? Right. Um, you know, you know as well as I do that that's a mistaken assumption that yeah. it erases the millions of Democratic voters who are people of faith, and particularly the people of color that's within right. the Democratic electorate. Yeah. But it's it's been kind of conventional wisdom among professional Democrats. <laughs> so I believe that John Edwards probably talked about faith a bit, just sure. because. He's John Edwards. Um, Wes Clark was somebody who I had shadowed a little bit. That's right. And who was very comfortable with the language of faith. Yeah. Also a Southerner who could talk about that, but um, whose uh, staff was almost comically unable to relate to him on that that score. I remember listening into a conference call where he was kind of um, trying to rev up his his campaign staff, and he said something about how it was going to be David versus Goliath, and um, he he was positioning himself as Goliath or as David rather. Um, and some of his campaign staff in the room I was in turned to each other and they were like, "What? What lion is he talking about? Was it a lion?" Was like, oh my lord. David and Goliath. Yeah. <laughs> Is nobody even familiar with this yeah. famous, so, world-famous story? Right. So this is you know the first episode of this podcast, but I think my, my listeners will get used to hearing. I mean, this is something that uh, folks who have been in the democratic faith space like Amy and I – well, this is a favorite pastime of trading stories of <laughs> just ridiculous illiteracy when it comes to when it comes to religion. That that's a good one, though. I hadn't heard that story yet, Amy. Uh, now Wesley Clark, he did bring on there. Michael Sean Winters was advising him at some point. Is that right, or did that come later? Oh dear. Yeah, I know um, this is going to tax my memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'll just say of Clark. He had some interesting people um, working around him, um, but he flamed out pretty quickly. And um, there was never going to be kind of a a Clark boomlet um, for the the nomination. Kerry kind of had from the beginning and then kind of was able to just kind of hang in there um, through the end to get the nomination. Everybody kind of assumed he was the one to beat and Mm. he turned out to be the one to beat. as far as his expressions of faith, 
I would say, um, I remember him being photographed on Ash Wednesday. Mm. So this would be, you know, probably February 2004 um, with the ashes in the shape of a cross, the sign of a cross on his forehead. Yeah. And that leading to kind of uh, what became dubbed by one of our colleagues as the wafer watch right. of um, political journalists keeping a watch out for whether he was going to be denied communion. And that was kind of the narrative that dogged him. Again, the assumption that Democratic Catholics were bad Catholics, yep. because um, that was a, a narrative and an argument that had been pushed by certain conservative bishops and archbishops within the Catholic Church. Um but it was unfortunate because Kerry himself didn't do much to push back against that or to put forward a counter narrative. Right. And so that kind of solidified itself and became the narrative about his Catholicism through the election. Right. And it also, you know, fed into you raised the interesting point about folks blaming the Supreme Court. And of course, there are We'll, we'll talk about how that relates to today, but I think often Democrats find a way to not be able to connect the concrete to the character or the values lens and not to be able to connect the faith to how it feeds into the broader character argument. So, you know, I would argue that Kerry's inability or unwillingness to have a, a definite sort of confident answer about his faith and how it informed his public service um, really bolstered the overall argument about Kerry, which was that he was a flip-flopper, um, which was that he was not driven by consistent values, that he was overly ambitious in pursuing the presidency, that he'd, I believe there was a story, you know, he'd wanted to, uh, Bush folks kept pushing that he'd wanted to be president his whole life. Uh, and faith really helped contribute to some of that. But let's move to the general, which you touched on a bit. There was Wafergate. Uh, we know that the Bush campaign was heavily driving and trying to capitalize on marriage referendums and marriage amendments uh, across states. So in Ohio and in other states, uh, there were uh, votes to ban gay marriage in 2004. And many believe that that helped turn out among evangelicals and conservative Catholics. How else did faith play a role in the general? And, and did John Kerry have faith staff? Was there any discernible sort of strategy Regarding any segment of the faith community, you know, not just evangelicals, but the black church, Hispanic uh, religious voters, or was there just no attentiveness at all? So it, it wouldn't surprise anybody that the Republican Party has been very adept and committed a lot of resources towards religious outreach. But even mm. compared to their previous efforts, 2004. Um, was really the high watermark in terms of how much mobilization and organization they had going on. Just to give you um, one snapshot of this, they really, they had volunteers organized at a parish and a congregation wide level across the U.S. And in Florida alone, the Republican Party had a state chairwoman for evangelical outreach. She hmm. appointed a dozen regional coordinators around the state and she, in addition, designated outreach chairs in each of Florida's 67 counties, each of those huh. county chairs. And these are all just for evangelical outreach, mind you. Each county huh. chair recruited between 30 and 50 volunteers 
to contact and register their evangelical neighbors. And it goes without saying, make sure they get to the polls. So that's the Republican effort in one state around one religious group. The Kerry campaign, meanwhile, in its general election, had hired one junior staff aide who had no previous national campaign experience to oversee all of their religious outreach. And they allowed her, and I love this detail, they allowed her one intern, unpaid, of course, and the two of them had a single telephone between them with which to (laughs) recruit recruit and contact volunteers. So you had basically an (laughs) army on one side. You want to talk about David and Goliath. (laughs) The Republicans said Goliath and all the Philistines, and maybe all the Greek and Roman armies too. <laughs> yeah, that's <right>. And Carrie <laughs> had little six-year-old David and yeah. a slingshot. And didn't even give him a slingshot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, just, uh, slingshot, but yeah, maybe just no like a rotary, a rotary phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's significant. And how aware of this infrastructure – were Democrats and uh, like, did they just think, well, those are Republican voters that really doesn't matter. We're going to focus on our voters or like, what was the, you know, what was, what was going on in Democrats minds as, you know, Republicans were building this behemoth. I think for professional Democrats, most of them didn't blink an eye at it because it was the way it had always been done. Um, the way mm. faith outreach has always been done for national Democrat campaigns is it's through the African-American outreach desk because right. it is assumed that the only really religious Democratic voters are African-Americans. And right. even then, I don't think a lot of Democrats – acknowledge that their faith is important to them. I think they look at it as a lot of people go to black church. And so it's a convenient way to find a lot of our voters in one place. And this particularly came up in Ohio (laughs) where there was um, a proposal, I believe to put a, a, an amendment into the state constitution to ban gay marriage and yep. um, Republicans, again, did their legwork, and they knew that African-Americans were disproportionately in favor of um, traditional marriage, the way they defined it. And so they ended up really um, being able to cut into Kerry's percentage of the black vote in Ohio that year, because they yep. understood that faith mattered to a lot of black voters, yep. and Democrats did not. Yeah. Now, th- this is exactly why, you know, we're starting out this podcast with these historical episodes, because so many threads are coming up already in this conversation that are relevant. And I just want to pull that out for folks. So what Amy zeroed in on uh, regarding the campaign infrastructure, it's not just that there is only black church outreach uh, within many Democratic campaigns. What Amy said, which was even more telling, and which is true for most campaigns, is that the only faith outreach, the, the Black church outreach, actually sits under the overall Black outreach department. 
which indicates exactly what Amy said and exactly what I found to be true too often on Democratic campaigns, which is that they don't recognize faith as a unique driver and shaper of a segment of the black vote, but that the black church is just a, a voter depot. It's a it's a helpful site for get out the vote operations, mm-hmm. uh, and that that is something that affected not just two thousand four. Uh, I'd argue part of the story uh, to be told in two thousand eight is a reversal of that sort of train of thought where. Uh, we won't get too much into that now, but there were specific black church outreach uh, staff and events in uh, during the, even the primary, not just the general. And then I'd, I'd say it affected what happened in 2016. So I think that's a really key point. Um, can I just after? Yeah, yeah, I sure. Just add yeah, here that, so that's on the level of what they could have been doing in terms of outreach and connecting to voters. I also think there was malpractice on the part of Kerry's staff in leaving him open to attacks without anticipating them. I mean, it really Mm. did not take a genius to know that (laughs) if Democrats ran the first Catholic nominee since John Kennedy, he was going to be attacked by the Catholic Church itself or by at least leaders within the Catholic Church. I mean, at that point, I had worked for Tom Daschle, who had come under attack from uh, Catholic leaders in his state. Tom Harkin had gotten attacks from leaders in his state in the Catholic Church. Ted Kennedy had undergone the same thing. Pat Leahy had gone through the same thing. I mean, you could list off Cuomo. Casey, yes. um, Yeah, this was not something that was new for two decades. There had been (laughs) um, efforts by, again, some – uh, leaders within the Catholic Church, not the entire church, um, but some leaders, sure. every time there was a Catholic Democrat um, who started to step out of line, they were warned uh, that they could be excommunicated or they could, you yep. know, in the language that was used, um, no longer have the freedom to call themselves Catholic. And um, mm. again, for some Democrats who weren't Catholic, they kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, who cares? Like, who cares what those people right. think? For some right. Democrats yeah. who were Catholic, they were kind of hardened by fights and thought, well, screw them. Who, again, yeah. who cares what they think? Let them do what they want to. For somebody like a John Kerry and like a Tom Daschle and like a Pat Leahy, their faith actually did really matter to them. And it was incredibly yeah. emotionally difficult to undergo these attacks and not have a response at the ready, not have a way to um, change the conversations so that it worked a little better for them Mm. and not have a band of surrogates to go out there and, um, and defend them. Basically, you know, there were some ad hoc surrogates who volunteered their efforts, but it wasn't anything that was coordinated by the carry campaign. Right. And even there wasn't even the infrastructure, uh, there wasn't even the development of infrastructure for really a comprehensive outside effort to be to be coordinated. Uh, like you said, there were ad hoc sort of validators, but um, you, you know there there just wasn't the organizational sophistication in the electoral space that started to to be developed a, a bit 
a bit later on. And even those uh, ad hoc is, efforts. Is there, yeah. So uh, another detail, I, I came across this couple when I was um, researching my book who lived in Erie, Pennsylvania, still do. We're still Facebook friends. <laughs> and um, yeah. they're longtime Democrats, um, but also very serious Catholics. And they saw all this going on, and they saw that Carrie was going to be doing an event, I think, at the local Erie airport when he's passing through. And yeah. they made their own pro-life for Carrie signs and brought them out. They just hmm. wanted to like push back at the narrative that good Catholics didn't back John Kerry. And sure. so they brought these signs to the airport and <laughs> held them up to try to, you know, put forward uh, the image of another kind of Carrie supporter. And Carrie's event staff came over and asked them to take down the signs and told them only, <laughs> quote, sanctioned signs were allowed. Yeah. So I want to I want to move forward a bit. So, you know, part of what's interesting about the aftermath of 2004, and it's really difficult I mean, I guess it feels like this all the time now, but it's difficult for folks to maybe wrap their heads around what a dark period it was for Democrats in the immediate wake after 2004. Again, I know it's I know it's hard to relate, but uh, this was uh, they had lost a re-election battle to a president that they never thought uh, should have been president in the first place. Someone that they uh, viewed as sort of incompetent, unpresidential kind of retrograde, and yet he beat them twice. Uh, I don't know if there's anyone on the national stage that that makes you think of uh, now. But so after 2004, uh, you know, sometimes it requires a dark period for innovation. Um, it w- it's been interesting reading the aftermath of 2004. Mary Beth Cahill, who was Kerry's campaign manager, uh, reflected that it was their inability to address the faith question that was a major reason for Kerry's defeat. John Kerry himself took numerous steps, including reaching out to academic professor who was at a seminary who would later serve with him in his state department and reaching out to sort of uh, religious voices to help him understand process and, and uh, be able to cultivate a real understanding and ability to speak about faith that he didn't have in that primary, at least that he showed. Uh, And then we saw sort of this cohort of progressive religious uh, voices and organizations who wanted to address the God gap uh, and sort of flooded DC to a certain extent. Amy, you, you were in DC, I believe at the time you certainly were heavily involved in covering these developments. How would you describe this sort of post 2004 period that led to uh, something of a resurgence within, uh, if not the Democratic Party itself, certainly, uh, you know, democratically aligned voters and uh, communities. I would describe it as a period of desperation. And when it came to faith (laughs) outreach, the attitude was, why the hell not? It couldn't hurt at this point. (laughs) Honestly, you know, E.J. Dion likes to say that Democrats found God in the exapoles of 2004. Yeah. Um, And that's not (laughs) too off the mark. Um, You referenced the God gap, and that was kind of a phrase. I can't remember who first coined it, but it was meant to describe the finding that in terms of uh, the electorate on election day in 2004, 
the more often you attended church, the more likely you were to vote for Bush. And the less often you attended church, um, or not at all, the more likely you were to vote for John Kerry. So the assumption was mm. that Bush got reelected um, thanks to believers, and um, right. because Americans are more religious than not, or at least were at the time, that in order for Democrats to do better next time around, they needed to actually pay attention. Um, I think we're in a slightly <laughs> different situation now, but that was that was one of yeah. the takeaways, and so. Yeah, sure. When a few people had some ideas and came to the congressional and Senate campaign committees with them for the midterms about how to try out some pilot projects in doing religious outreach and in actually, and this was, I think, the key, establishing long-term relationships with religious voters and with religious leaders – for the first time, there were Democratic organs that were willing to say, okay, all right, well, we'll give you some money for that, or we'll let you work with our candidates. Hmm. And it was really right. um, because they felt like they had hit rock bottom. Little did they know, Michael, <laughs> but they <laughs> thought they had hit rock bottom. Well, that concludes the first part of our interview with Amy Sullivan. And I I hope that, like I said to begin this episode, that you're starting to pick up some of the vocabulary, some of the ideas that will be important as we move to current events and move to analyzing what presidential campaigns today are doing. It is not hard to, to see comparisons to the situations Democrats find themselves in right now. They do have the House, but they've been locked out of the Senate for years, and they are facing a presidential candidate that they didn't think should have beat them the first time, and that they may be in danger of underestimating this time around, both in terms of his overall effectiveness, but also the deep connection to certain swaths of the faith community uh, that he has. When we go to the next episode, we're going to talk about 2006 and lessons that Democrats learned from 2004. It's been wonderful having you with us for this first episode of the Faith 2020 podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the Anne Campaign. Learn more about the Anne Campaign by visiting annecampaign.org. Our producer for the show is Bo York. Our guest this week was Amy Sullivan, and I've been your host, Michael Ware. Look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020.